Hi everyone, welcome back to Killer Astrology. I'm your host, Laura, and I'm really excited to talk to you today about two upcoming astrological events. The first is a new moon eclipse in 23 degrees Sagittarius happening tomorrow, December 14th, 2020. This is the second eclipse of this season, coming after the full moon eclipse that we had in Gemini on November 30th. Now, new moons are different from full moons because they start us on something new and send us on a new path, whereas full moons push us to reevaluate something that we've already been doing and to release what's not working for us. This new moon eclipse, given that it's in the growth-oriented sign of Sagittarius, has the potential to jumpstart us on a journey of discovery and adventure and allow you the opportunity to expand your horizons to learn more about yourself and about the world. This can be a really exciting time in your life, but of course the idea of expansion can be scary too because it most of the time requires change. Whether it's a change in your point of view, an alteration of your environment, or a difference in your work, this eclipse may start you on the road to new opportunities. And when we grow, we tend not to come out the same way we went in. On a more immediate note, if you tend to be very affected by the transits of the moon, you may find yourself a little bit tired right now. Eclipses are full of energy and it can be a lot to integrate, so make sure you get some rest and stay hydrated over the next few days. The next astrological event we'll be seeing in the very near future is the so-called Great Conjunction, a meeting of Jupiter and Saturn that will take place in Aquarius on December 21st. Astrologers have been talking about this conjunction for a long time, for one, because it only happens every 12 years, and for another reason, which is that it's going to bring about a collective change, a societal change. Saturn is the planet of structures, and because of that, it rules governments and societal systems. Jupiter is the planet of growth, as we've discussed before, but it is also the planet of ethics and belief systems. For the past year or so, both of these planets have been in Capricorn, so they've been acting conservatively in favor of what already exists. But when they meet on December 21st, they're going to be in Aquarius, which favors innovation and restructuring of the old to create something better for the advancement of communities of people. With these planets meeting in the critical zero degree, they're pure in their pursuit of practical revisions of structures and systems to meet more ethical standards that serve a wider range of people. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to seeing how these themes play out over the next year. Moving on from that optimistic note to a mildly darker one, our topic for today. There will be some gruesome details in this episode today, so please listen at your own risk. In this episode, we're discussing a story that could reach all the way back into 1897 and give Bram Stoker the chills. That's right, today we're talking about vampires. Real-life vampires, which you probably thought didn't even exist, but you were mistaken. As it turns out, there are many people out there who practice what we would call vampirism in various forms. According to a 2015 article by The Guardian, there are groups of people all around the country who crave blood and practice feeding off each other in safe and sanitary ways that feel sacred to them. I guess we could call this a civilized and respectful form of vampirism, which is in contrast to the type of vampirism in the story we're discussing today. 
While many modern vampires are satisfying biological and psychological cravings to drink blood with no ties to the folklore we associate with monsters, there are others that identify with the macabre legends we know and act those out within their groups, which they call clans. Those are the vampires we're focusing on today, with attention to one man in particular. The subject of our story today is Rod Farrell, who was born in March of 1980 in a small town situated right at what's called the Buckle of the Bible Belt in Murray, Kentucky. The culture of this town is very similar to what you might expect in a southern town, which according to the 2010 census is home to about 18,000 people, almost 16,000 of them white, And in this town, there's about one church for every 300 people. And if you do the math, that's 60 churches in this one small town. With the backdrop of religious meeting houses in Murray, Kentucky, the groups of teenagers who wore all black and roamed the streets in groups drew curious eyes and incited fear in their onlookers. Most of them came from broken homes or felt otherwise discarded by their peers and their families, and they found refuge in this group of other misfits. When they joined their vampire clan after undergoing a ceremonious initiation where they were sired, quote unquote, by the group leader, they became a part of a new family where they could express themselves freely and enjoy a newfound freedom that wasn't exactly pure and chaste. In a town where sanctity and purity were being outwardly worshipped by most of the population, these blood-drinking, sex-having, drug-doing teenagers embraced their labels as outcasts, And among them, Rod Farrell stood out. Rod was 15 when he entered his first vampire clan, a measure he was driven to take to find a sense of community and completeness after an inconsistent and traumatic childhood. Rod's parents were young when he was born. His mom was 17, and she married his dad because they both felt like it was the right thing to do. But Rod's father was only around for a few weeks before he left, returning seven years later for just a short time, and then leaving for good when Rod was about nine years old. The family that Rod grew up with was as unconventional as the group of teenage vampires he would surround himself with when he got to high school. He lived with his mother, Sandra, and with his grandparents, Harold and Rosetta Gibson. Since his father wasn't around, his grandfather was his main paternal role model, But according to Rod, his grandfather was a servant of darkness rather than a guiding beacon of light. He was a member of a cult which Rod called the Black Masks, which I couldn't find evidence of online, but which may have very well existed. Rod shared with a psychologist after his crimes, which we'll get to shortly, that his grandfather and this cult worshipped the devil and performed dark sacrificial rituals on animals and humans. He also said that his grandfather and his grandfather's friends raped him in connection with those rituals. These occult ties also connected to Rod's mother, who apparently had an appreciation for the vampiric lifestyle that Rod would eventually live. In fact, in 1997, she was brought up on charges for soliciting a minor after a letter that she wrote to a 14-year-old boy surfaced. In that letter, she wrote the following, according to the Orlando Sentinel, quote, I long to be near you for your embrace. Yes, to become a vampire, a part of the family, immortal and truly yours forever. I only hope that one day you will once again return to Murray. You will then come for me and cross me over, and I will be your bride for eternity and you my sire, end quote. 
I'm going to go no comment on that one for now. By the time he got to high school, Rod had gained a reputation of being a bit peculiar. He had really long hair and he wore a long trench coat to school, and he started hanging out with a group that embraced the different ways he presented himself, since they were a bit peculiar too. He met another student named Jaden, who led his own vampire clan, and in January of 1995, he inducted Rod in. The induction took place at a local cemetery, and it was just the two of them alone. They made small cuts in each other's skin and drank each other's blood underneath a tree and then, according to Rod, sat quietly for hours. But the quiet was fleeting, and it wasn't long before Jaden would start to have doubts about his new friend. In a documentary called Kentucky Teenage Vampires, Jaden recounts the incident that presented the first red flag about Rod. He and Rod were walking through town and came across a cat in the street. The cat wasn't particularly shy and it came up to them, but when Rod picked it up, it scratched him and he got angry. So he grabbed the cat by the neck and without shame or question, walked over to a tree and struck its body multiple times against the tree, killing it within a few seconds. Although Jaden's vampire clan did some questionable things, real life violence and killing was not acceptable to them. It wasn't too long after this incident that Rod was disowned by his chosen family and kicked out of the clan for his extreme behavior. So, shunned from his new family with really no one else to turn to, what was Rod to do? Well, he started his own clan, of course. He quickly recruited four clan members between the ages of 15 and 19, all of whom were tired of life in Murray, Kentucky, and craved something more. They talked all the time about their big plans to move to Louisiana, and eventually they got there. But it wasn't all they dreamed of. They were only in Baton Rouge for a couple of days before Rod and three of his clan members were arrested for murder. For some length of time in the fall of 1996, Rod had been on a drug binge and claims to have taken multiple sheets of acid on the day that he received a call from his ex-girlfriend, Heather. Heather lived in Eustis, Florida with her family, and according to Rod, had called to ask him if he would come kill her parents because they were hurting her. Now, for years, Heather has asserted that she never made that suggestion, and she cites a positive experience with her parents. In an interview with the Orlando Sentinel, she's quoted as saying, quote, most of my childhood was perfect, end quote. Her mom stayed at home and loved crafting and drawing talents that she passed on to Heather herself. And her dad had a knack for business and made sure to attend all of his kids' sporting events. But Heather knew Rod because she fell into the vampire scene in high school herself. Like him, she wore all black and befriended other misfits and even decorated her backpack with a Barbie on a noose. Leading up to the murders, her grades started slipping in school and she had been reaching out to Rod much more frequently for a period of about six months. And although she wasn't home at the exact time of the murders, she was there to greet Rod on the day that he and his friends drove to Florida, and was also there when the group fled to Louisiana in her deceased parents' car. So whether Heather made a serious request for Rob to kill her parents is still a question in this case, and there's evidence that could go either way. She may have said something out of frustration that she didn't mean for him to take seriously, and then when he did take it seriously, she was stuck. 
Or she may have said nothing at all, and in a drug-induced haze, Rod heard something that his dark mind wanted to hear. We really may never know. But regardless of where this idea was generated, the murders happened, and they were gruesome. On November 25, 1996, 16-year-old Rod Farrell and his friends, Howard Anderson, Dana Cooper, and Charity Kesey, completed the 12-hour drive from Murray, Kentucky to Eustis, Florida, arriving at Heather's house where her parents, Ruth and Richard, were going about their business inside. Rod told Heather and the other two girls to leave, and together he and Scott entered the home, picking up a crowbar from the garage before entering the living area. When they got inside, Richard was asleep on the couch, and his wife Ruth was taking a shower. Because Richard was asleep with the television on, Rod was able to sneak up on him in relative silence, hitting him first on the head to knock him out. When he was later asked by police whether he hit him anywhere other than the head, he said this, quote, I striked him once in the chest because he wouldn't stop breathing, so I stabbed him in the heart, end quote. With his first brutal murder completed, Rod started enacting his escape plan. He knew that Heather's parents had a Ford Escape, and prior to completing the murders, he had planned to use that vehicle as his getaway car, since on his way to Florida, he was stopped by police for driving his own car with a flat tire. While he was searching for those keys, Heather's mom got out of the shower and went to prepare herself a cup of coffee. She was, of course, very surprised to see Rod, and she threw her coffee at him in self-defense, but it wasn't enough to stop him. He hit her over the head with the crowbar, just like he'd done to her husband, and beat her to death. Now, Rod's friend Scott was in the house as all of this was taking place, and after the murders were completed, he helped Rod search for the keys and also helped him swipe a credit card from their male victim's pocket. They eventually met up with the girls in the original car and switched the plates on the vehicles and then drove to Baton Rouge in the Ford Escape. But they were very quickly arrested after police received a tip about the group. It wasn't long before all of these teenagers were indicted for their crimes, and all of them pled guilty to those charges, with the exception of Heather, who a grand jury decided should not be charged. Rod's trial began on February 12, 1998, and lasted for 11 days. On the 23rd of February, he was unanimously sentenced to death by the jury. When asked about his sentence in the documentary, Kentucky Teenage Vampires, Rod is quoted saying, quote, The electric chair has always been a main icon. It's a majestic throne of death, end quote. He was implying here that the death penalty held an allure that he welcomed. While at this point, he did seem to invite death, he later fought for a change in his sentence and he won, getting his sentence reduced to life in prison. His accomplice, Scott, had also had his sentence reduced to 40 years in prison, and the reason for the reduction was that when they committed the crimes, they were both under 18. So what was going on for Rod that pushed him to have such a disregard for human life? Let's review his astrology for some insight. Rod Farrell was born on March 28, 1980, at 12.43 p.m. in Murray, Kentucky. He has an Aries sun, a Virgo moon, and a Leo ascendant, and lots of difficult energetic connections between the planets in his chart. As someone with the sun in Aries, Ron is inherently impulsive. 
This impulsivity can be a stereotypical trait for Aries people along with their fighting spirit, but both have a purpose. Aries people are on a mission to seize what they want out of life. And for Rod, one of the most alluring factors of the life he sought was freedom. Rod had his son in Aries in the ninth house, the house of learning through adventures. Rod was always seeking new experiences, but those were hard to come by in the small, homogeneous town of Murray, Kentucky, where most of the people, at least at the time of Rod's murders, were confined to a short range of acceptable belief systems. The energy that Rod could have better spent exploring the world and discovering new ideas was stifled and contained to a smaller area than it deserved. But the energy was still there, it didn't go away, and so it had to be redirected somewhere. And where and how that energy was directed can be identified by looking at Rod's Mars placement, since Mars is the fiery and assertive ruler of Aries. Rod's natal Mars is in Leo, in his second house, and it's retrograde. With natal Mars retrograde, the energy that Rod could have used to explore and learn was more stuck, and that was definitely mirrored in his environment in this small town Kentucky. But that stuck Mars energy had an internal component, of course, and it became very frustrating. And there was another planet egging that frustration on. Rod's chart shows a difficult aspect between impulsive Mars and spontaneous, freedom-seeking Uranus. When well-aspected, Uranus gives us the power to innovate, to dismantle structures and build them back up again to make them even better than they were before. But when Uranus is poorly aspected, it can be pretty dangerous. The square between Uranus and Mars in Rod's chart gave him a scary ability to not just dismantle things, but frankly to wreck them out of misdirected frustration. The square between Uranus and Mars in the chart gave him the potential for violent outbursts and overly forceful attempts to seek freedom. It elevated his temper to an unpredictable level that fueled his capacity for impulsive destruction. In the documentary I mentioned earlier, Rod says in an interview, quote, I had decided to take the darker path, the evil path. I found that more exciting, end quote. I think this statement is really indicative of the restlessness that lived inside Rod that his environment didn't allow him to explore. So he did it in a way that helped him experience a different side of life, but not in an adaptive, growth-oriented way. He became evil, in his words, because it allowed him to take some control over the ideologies that he chose to identify with. Rod gave this quote in hindsight, and it seems to indicate some level of self-awareness. But I wonder how much awareness he actually had of his emotions and his decisions in in in-the-moment situations. Based on the makeup of Rod's chart, it's pretty safe to say that he wasn't as in touch with his emotions as he could have been, and there are multiple reasons for that. First, we know that the moon rules emotions, self-care, and healing. Rod's moon is in Virgo, which isn't a bad placement for the moon, but like any other moon sign, can cause its own brand of emotional difficulty. Virgo likes organization and very strongly dislikes disorder and commotion. The moon is about emotional safety, and the Virgo moon is happy when things feel perfect and in place. But emotions can threaten that sense of security. They're relatively unpredictable and can sometimes get in the way of accomplishing goals, since they redirect attention and energy from the task at hand for a period of time. When emotions aren't big enough to halt progress, 
they can be ignored or pushed aside for reasons of efficiency, and Virgo really likes efficiency. So that's a tendency here, and it's one hint in Rod's birth chart that tells us that he might be prone to emotional avoidance. But there are others. Here's one more. Rod's Aries sun is quincunx to his moon. The sun represents our ego and our will, and as we know, the moon governs emotions. The quincunx aspect makes it harder for two planets to communicate productively with each other. So in this case, it's hard for Rod to drudge up the will to manage his emotions, to illuminate them, and to bring them to the surface. Complicating this difficulty even more is a third emotional avoidance mechanism, an opposition between the moon in Virgo and Mercury. This opposition made it harder for Rod to bring his feelings into his own conscious awareness or to talk about them, as Mercury is a communicator and has a hand in our mental processes. Being that his Mercury is also in Pisces, there's a tendency for his thoughts to escape to other realms. His Moon-Mercury relationship allowed Rod to build up fantasies about his life, essentially to lie to himself about his reality and to lie to others about it as well. And we can add a fourth strike against emotion management when we consider that Mercury is the ruler of Virgo, the sign that Rod's moon occupies. This makes the opposition between the moon and Mercury more difficult to manage and therefore creates even further separation between Rod's feelings and his ability to understand them and respond to them effectively. The bottom line here is that keeping his emotions at arm's length, or farther, is probably a factor that caused him to abuse drugs and to let his frustration brew even hotter under the surface, exploding out in destructive ways. One thing we know about Rod's story is that he was not unfamiliar with themes of destruction and darkness. We've heard a bit about his family and their connection to the occult. Rod grew up around people who worshipped the dark arts and went to extreme measures to prove their loyalty to those forces. Sometimes he was the victim of those extreme rituals, and that, of course, caused trauma. We see this very clearly reflected in Rod's chart, which shows Pluto exactly on his IC, the midnight point of his chart, at 20 degrees Libra. The IC describes a lot about your inner world and your childhood and where you came from. And Pluto, as we know, is the ruler of the underworld. So we know that darkness was woven into the fabric of who he was and how he grew up. And Pluto is caught in a battle between structure and dissolution, as seen in a square between Saturn and Neptune in Rod's chart. Rod has Saturn in his third house, which has a lot to do with learning style and school experience. Saturn's placement in the birth chart shows us where we experience restriction and difficulty. Saturn in the third house here says to me that Rod was uncomfortable at school. Maybe he learned differently from others and that made him feel like he wasn't as smart as anyone else. And maybe that held him back from making friends. With his Saturn exactly square to his Neptune, he may have coped by escaping into a different world. In fact, I'm sure that this interaction is connected to his drug use as a teenager. But the difficult connection between these two planets likely also made him feel like he had no solid ground, no defined structure within which to live his life. And so when he was old enough to make his decisions, he retreated into the place he knew well, the place of darkness represented by Pluto, which describes the darkness he grew up around that would serve as a predictable structure for him to rely on. There's one more quote I want to share from the Kentucky Teenage Vampires film. 
It's a quote from Rod describing his own dark, violent, destructive actions that dismantled a family and landed him in prison for life. He says, quote, I truly believe not anything could have changed it. I mean, if it wouldn't have been for the Wendorfs, at the rate I was going, it would have been somebody, if not more people, end quote. In a different scene, he says, quote, Everyone in their life, except for rare exceptions, will come down to the point where they're faced with an opportunity to either kill or show mercy. Many of us come to that point many times. And I mean, it's really simple. It's either you do or you don't, end quote. So what do you think about that? Do you agree with him? Thank you for listening to another episode of Killer Astrology. Don't forget to leave a five-star review before you go. I'll be back for another episode next week, and I've been looking forward to next week's episode for a long time. I'm going to keep the specifics a secret for now, but I'll tell you it's a missing persons case that has stumped us all for nearly 17 years. I'm going to look at the astrology to try and figure out where this person may be, and I'm bringing on a guest to talk with me about the astrology and to use tarot as a method to try and figure out where she might be. Until then, remember, people may lie, but the stars never do. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and follow the podcast on social media, the information for which you'll find in the episode description. Visit my website, killerastrologypodcast.com, for reference information for this episode and more. Schedule your own astrology reading with me by visiting killerastrologypodcast.com slash services or lauracarryastrology.com.